Today I'm speaking with Jake Brown, a United States Air Force veteran who served for six years as a nuclear and missile operations officer. But you may know him better as one of the most prominent voices on YouTube throughout the war, someone with an absolute moral clarity about who the victim of the war is. Spoilers, it's Ukraine. And who brings direct military experience to his detailed analysis of the unfolding conflict? Please do subscribe to his channel for video updates on the war in Ukraine, as well as conversations that Jake has with engaging speakers, expert guests, and of course, other YouTubers. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Uh, all our content is also available on podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please do like, subscribe, uh, so you can find new fantastic speakers that we feature. And of course, if you enjoy the content, consider supporting us by becoming a patron or buy me a coffee. Jake, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to Silicon Curtain. Thanks for having me. This is a, a lot of fun to be here. Well, we've got a lot of stuff to unpack. Uh, I must warn you, I've watched an awful lot of your material, so uh, I may be quizzing you on some of that. But the first question really is about the evolution of the channel. Uh, you have stuck to the Ukraine theme right from the start of the full-scale war. What is it that motivates you to to stick with Ukraine and, um, you, you know, to endlessly mine the story uh, with the kind of interesting angles that you that you do? For those who don't know me, my background as far as YouTubing, uh, I actually separated from the United States Air Force the same week that Russia invaded Ukraine. So this was February of 2022. And uh, I was stationed in North Dakota in a very small town near the Canadian border called Minot. Wasn't a whole lot to do. So as a, a hobby, something to do, I started a YouTube channel. At the time, I was trying to learn more about finance and investing for myself. And I just naturally started generating my own contents uh, with a focus on investing topics that would be useful to United States military members. Uh, after two years, my channel was about 80,000 subscribers, and I, I decided I wanted to do YouTube full-time. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, I just made a one-off video kind of giving my thoughts. As a veteran, uh, I have a, a master's degree in international relations, so I, I try and stay up to date on current events and news. I feel like I'm very knowledgeable about geopolitics and, and world history. Uh, and this video just did really well. You know, my normal finance content was getting about maybe 10,000 views a video. This one got 20 or 30 because there were so many people that first week or two looking for information. So I tried to balance both. I tried to be loyal to my existing subscriber base. And I was kind of like alternating, talking about credit cards or trading options one video, and then the war in Ukraine the next video. And my channel doubled in size within like a month or two. I was at almost 200,000 subscribers and I realized I'm no longer a finance YouTuber. I'm, I hate this word, military blogger or, or some kind of war commentator. And I've stuck with it the last two years because I feel like this is my contribution. You know, I, I'm not actively serving, but I deeply care about the national security of my own country as, as well as our allies around the world. And I value democracy and it's painfully obvious to everyone how immoral and evil Vladimir Putin is. And these wars will never stop. The world will not be a safe place for my children if I choose to have them, if the Russians can keep any territory that they've stolen. Given my background as a... Uh, launch officer for nuclear weapons, the fact that Russia this entire time, directly or indirectly on Kremlin state TV, has been threatening the whole entire world with nuclear war. This this is not okay. The world has to put a, put an end to this. It's it's extraordinary act of terrorism. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. You probably started, as I did, uh, knowing very little about Ukraine itself. Um, obviously, we've had the, um, the invasion of Crimea was some time ago, but and and you know we've seen on the news the various revolutions unfolding. But I have to admit, um, I knew a lot about Russia. I knew a lot about Russian history, some of which I've had to reevaluate in the light of the full-scale war. Um, 
not all, because I was fairly cynical about Russia and uh, its politics prior to that, but I knew next to nothing about Ukraine. And I suspect that if Ukraine was a backward, corrupt country, if it genuinely had these sort of uh, the Russian world values that we see, I'm not sure we'd be caring or doing these videos but it's clear Ukraine is very different and there's something worth fighting. How's that journey been for you as well of discovering Ukraine, talking to Ukrainians and finding something really that's worth defending and, and fighting for? Going back two years ago, you're right. I knew next to nothing about Ukraine. And if Ukraine didn't value freedom and democracy, if, if Ukraine didn't want to end corruption in their government and society, this is what they want. They're not there yet, but they want to improve. They want to join NATO. They want to join the European Union. They want to be a real democracy. Uh, yeah, I'm. that's what has captivated me, captured my attention, and, and, and made me stick with them. There are lots of conflicts around the world, lots of tragedy and warfare and people dying. People ask, why don't I talk about those conflicts? And I don't identify with those people. I, I, I think, you know, a lot of people want to flee those parts of the world to live in the West because of our uh, personal liberties and our guarantees and securities. This is what Ukraine wants. And I can't, I can't, you know, it, it, it's weird. I've never been to Europe. I've never been to Ukraine. But yeah, I, I feel it emotionally. You know, I'm emotionally invested in this war and this outcome. And as long as it takes, I'm here. I make a YouTube video every other day. Uh, it is a long process to, to research, film, edit, and upload. But this is the least I can do. The, I feel like this is the, I mean, I have a very comfortable life here in Las Vegas. Uh, so I get to turn off my computer, unplug, and hang out with family and friends, enjoy my life. But yeah, in the back of my mind, I know how much the people in Ukraine are suffering, and I'll be here as long as it takes. And I, I do believe they are going to win this war. Another interesting aspect of this, and actually what triggered my interest in Russia was, I think, the lack of liberty. And, you know, it's like if you're in a warm bath, say the UK, and you've, you've, you've had... Uh, decades, if not uh, centuries of democracy or revolution towards the kind of democracy system values we've got, it's quite easy to an extent to take them for granted, isn't it? But for me, at least studying Russia, and then of course, this war in Ukraine has shown that these things that we have really to an extent taken for granted are actually rather fragile. And historical terms, they're relatively recent, the kind of freedoms and liberty that we're talking about. Um, for you, has this whole period also um, sort of shone a light on how these values need to actually be defended? You know, if if we just sort of assume they're going to carry on forever, they would slip away. And I think that's what looking at Ukraine and their struggle really shows me, at least, is that they are willing to not just fight, but but die, lay down everything to to enjoy these values that we perhaps take for granted. It is recent. The amount of personal liberty and freedom that most people have in the world today, you think about the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, 14 new republics that, you know, varying degrees, they're not all great, they're not all where they should be, but it's better than life under the Soviet Union, under Joseph Stalin in the 1950s. Um, and yeah, any democracy can lose this at any time. Uh, I forget which founding father said it, maybe Ben Franklin, but if you're willing to sacrifice freedom for security, you deserve neither. You'll you'll get neither. There will always be in democracies strong men who will. I mean, it's it's the it's the standard dictator uh, handbook. You have to create a, an external enemy, create this us versus them feeling, uh, and then tell people we got to get rid of this freedom, this right, in order to beat these people, in order to be safe and secure, when really they're just trying to consolidate power for themselves 
in my mind, uh, the boogeyman in Russian society is the LGBTQ uh, community. Uh, Russia's basically made it illegal to be LGBT in Russia. You know, they, they these crackdowns on the nightclubs. I don't really talk about this much in my YouTube videos because it's sad and there's nothing that anyone can do. This is an internal Russian conflict, but this is what Putin sells to his people. It's the gay agenda that's trying to destroy traditional conservative Russian values. And we have to get rid of these freedoms and rights in order to stop, you know, the decay and the corruption that the West is currently suffering from. That's a message that has worked in Russia with the Russian people and, and this war and hundreds of thousands of people dying is their consequence. Uh, I hope that people in the West, UK, France, United States, Canada, we don't fall for this. Uh, and, and when a, a strong man comes along, we, we tell him, no, we're not going to let you demonize this group of people, whoever it may be, and then take away our personal liberties. And one upside of the war is the emergence of strong voices like yours, um, but also some of the people we've sort of got to know and, uh, you know, perhaps count uh, not just as sort of uh, comrades in this fight, but also uh, friends as well. I know you, you've interacted with some sort of similar people that I have. Uh, Anna Danilchuk, uh, OS Oprestarsky, Vlad Vexler, and many others. Um, do you think it's... It, uh, an interesting phenomenon that so many strong voices have have emerged uh, to share um, their stories. And does this give you some some hope, perhaps, for uh, you know for for humanity um, that people are there who will rise to the occasion uh, when um, you know when we have terrible strife like uh, like is happening now. There's a there's like a psychological test you can take where there's like a series of questions that can basically uh, define what is your worldview. And one of the questions I remember is, do you believe that most people in the world are inherently bad? Or do you believe that most people in the world are inherently good? And you can ask anyone this question. It's fascinating to get their responses because some people are very negative and they say most people are out to get you. Most people are bad. But I, I actually... I've had a very fortunate life maybe, but I'm of the opinion that most people are good people and they want to do the right thing. They believe in the golden rule that, you know, you should treat others how you would like to be treated. But there are a lot of evil and bad people out there just taking as much for themselves at everyone else's expense. So when I meet fantastic people, like the names you've listed, I'm not surprised. Uh, I wish more people... Uh, could get on YouTube and share their voice. I know it's a social media is very competitive and to get traction in the algorithm is demoralizing to most people. So it's, it is a little random, you know, who, who bubbles to the top, but I think it's a group, good group of people. And I know there's people that are, are not going to listen to me. They don't like my face. They don't like my voice. I, I don't take it personally. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not people's preferred version of, of, of getting information about Ukraine. But if they're watching somebody else, if they're still supporting Ukraine, that makes me happy. Uh, so I, I love it that there's this eclectic group and pick one, as long as you stay engaged, stay informed and continue supporting Ukraine. I think, uh, you know, from some of the comments I see, you know, occasionally, of course, there'll be people who have their preferences, but I get the impression that if they're watching you, they're watching Vlad, if they're watching me, they're watching Anna, vice versa, people tend to have a uh, like a pantheon of, uh, of channels they watch. But I'm also, uh, you know, part of the NAFO kind of uh, meme shitposting community, which I think is a great phenomenon. I'd love to hear what you think in a minute. But... There was a point at which I um, just sort of sat up a couple of months ago and thought, you know, I'm 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 in a bubble here, and this bubble can create the impression, the pro-Ukrainian bubble. It can create the impression that everyone thinks like we do, that they see the brutality of Russia, they see the clear lack of ambiguity, really, in in moral terms. Um, and I came to realize that actually, well, one, there are a lot of people even uh, in Europe, who do not share that, and I'd say Europe and US, um, 
And there are many others who know this is going on in the background, but have just kind of tuned out to get on with their lives and so on. Do you get that impression too? And, 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 and what can we do about it? How can we expand this Ukraine bubble? Because with your sort of geopolitical uh, hat on, uh, and my view is that this is a huge existential threat to the security of Europe, even the security of the US, um, to the trade model that creates wealth for the US and Europe. I mean, all these things, in my view, are under threat. It seems the majority of people are like, yeah, not, you know, not so engaged as we think they are. Well, there's two kinds of people. There's people that are just focused on their immediate life in their local area, and they're they're never going to care about anything that happens greater than 20 miles away. Uh, you know, uh, some facts about Americans. One of my favorite ones is that uh, a majority of Americans live within like 10 or 20 miles of their mothers. Like they never, they never move away. They never travel. They're just focused on, you know, paying the bills and working their job. They're, they're trying to be good people, but they're never going to care about what's happening in Asia or Europe or Africa or South America. So don't, don't take it personal. That's just a survival technique that people have in order to deal with their emotional or, or, you know, take care of their family or whatever. But the other group of people who do care about international events and, and pay attention, sympathy, empathy, fatigue is a real thing. You know, when, when the war began, CNN and Fox news and MSNBC were had, had all the stories uh, about the refugees and, Russia blowing up apartment buildings. But eventually they stopped covering it because people stopped watching it. They know what's right and wrong. They just feel powerless and they don't like feeling bad, you know, having sympathy for people who are victims, clearly. We've been going on two years now. Some people disengage and then re-engage. That's fine. If you need to take care of your own mental health, if you need to put yourself first for a short amount of time, that's great. Uh, but when an election comes around, please do the right thing and only support politicians who are willing to fully support Ukraine. That's the minimum engagement we ask of these people. So as far as expanding the bubble of Ukrainian YouTubers, this is a this is not something I don't I don't think you or I can direct or expand. I, I think it's its own force. With my YouTube analytics, it's painfully obvious that when a big newsworthy event happens, there, there's a spike in viewership. Uh, when the Black Sea Fleet headquarters was blown up, my, that video did really well. People know me. They, they watch my videos, but day to day, they're not going to stay engaged. But when Pergosian's rebellion happened and he had his thunder run going to Moscow. Yeah, that view that video got twice as many views as people re-engaged to, to see what the big event was. So just because they're not watching our content, I don't think we've lost these people. They'll be back. Uh, but they're waiting for something more significant to happen. And, and and Russia knows this, which is why they want this narrative of a it's a protracted war. It's never going to end. It's a it's a standstill. You know, the, the West is getting tired. They're eventually going to abandon Ukraine. Russia's victory is inevitable, but that's not true. Even if emotionally, people sometimes feel that. And I think that's something that uh, certainly we're both doing. And there are there are there are others as well who try to point out that uh, simplistic terms like stalemate, deadlock, etc. And the more pernicious narratives of, well, it's time to negotiate, et cetera, which in the context of Russia and its prior behaviors is completely irrational because there's no uh, grounds to believe that you can actually have a negotiated settlement with uh, Putin or that he's even looking for one. But these narratives do start to have kind of traction, as you say, in this environment of fatigue. Um, so I know you tackle them, people like Anna uh, and operator tackle them, but with your military hat on, it, would you say that this concept of stalemate is far too simplistic because there's a lot of stuff going on there's the um loss of control of the black sea there's the hitting of the black sea uh, fleet headquarters there's the uh strike on the tunnel in siberia uh, the key logistics tunnel 
uh, that leads between uh, Siberia and China. There's an awful lot of stuff going on. At the same time, Russian forces are being attrited at an, a phenomenal volume. So what do you think a more accurate summary of this period of, of superficial stasis on the battlefield is when actually so much is going on behind the scenes? It's a war of attrition, 100%. Uh, Russia will have a breaking point. Uh, I, I, I say this in my videos, but people say Russia is never going to collapse. And my response is Russia has collapsed twice in the last century. If there's one country in the world most likely to collapse based on all historical precedences, it's Russia. So don't believe the propaganda saying that they're doing fine when they're not. And to put this in perspective, uh, Putin, prior to the invasion, had a war chest saved up of $600 billion. He was an idiot and didn't tell his financial advisors he was invading Ukraine because half that money was being stored in Western banks. But he still had $300 billion in reserves. And that $300 billion was not to fund a protracted, stalemated, two-year-long war. That's not what that money was for. That money was to, for Russia to survive the next decade under sanctions. Putin knew sanctions were coming. He was supposed to take Kiev in three days. I'm sure he had a piece of paper and did the math himself saying, all right, well, we're going to, you know, the West is going to put these sanctions on us, but we're absorbing Ukraine. We're getting their people. We're getting their natural resources. Maybe we can make up for that. I've saved up $600 billion to get to make sure the pension system in Russia remains stable and we can get through the next 10 or 20 years. Maybe when I die, uh, the next leader of Russia can negotiate with the West and have these sanctions taken off. So Putin lost half his money and the other half he's blowing on this war. There's nothing left. They, Russia doesn't have access to the international bond markets. No one's going to loan them money. So it's just a, it, the, the war map updates, I don't really do them because to me, it doesn't matter. This field was taken. This field was taken. That's not going to determine who wins this war. Russia's bank account going to zero. That is what's going to determine who wins this war. So every day the Ukrainians continue to resist. You know, how much does it cost to keep their entire economy going? It, you know, in financial assistance, about five or six billion a month. As long as the West can continue keeping Ukraine alive, Russia is eventually going to go bankrupt first. And the Chinese, the Iranians, the Syrians aren't going to save them. No, no. And there's a there's a deeper game, perhaps, afoot there with China, hoping it uh, Russia can become a, a vassal state. So we've got three major front lines. We've got the battlefield, which, of course, is what a lot of the, the media focuses on and, and quite a number of YouTube channels you know, showing the daily war map, et cetera, et cetera. I can see how people will chew in in and like that kind of stuff. You know, it's 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 news every day. But like you, I, I don't tend to sort of cover that unless there's something something major like the fall of Bakhmut or Avdivka and the implications for that. Um, otherwise, it's just, you know, it, it's not as interesting uh, for, for me and uh, as it is for you. But we've got we've got the battlefront. We have the economy, the the sanctions economy in Russia, which is another crucial crucial battlefront um, to potentially win. And then there's the third one, which is the irregular warfare. Now Russia has shown itself very adept at propaganda and even grey zone warfare, but Ukrainians are smart and innovative, and. Where they have perhaps been allowed to, uh, they've shown extraordinarily uh, extraordinary capability at conducting this stuff. Like when they injected the free Russian uh, legions into Belgorod, that was an extraordinary um, event uh, and, and quite destabilizing for the Russian system. Um, so the question is, victory when it comes, is it going to be a combination of all three? Or is it likely that irregular warfare and the economy may well be the thing that actually tips this over the edge for Russia into a loss? It's everything. It's it's death by a thousand paper cuts. Uh, anyone online, we've talked about NAFO, can contribute to helping bring down Russia. There's, there's the, the big pillars, but if somebody wants to throw a rock and smash a window, it all adds up. Uh, and 
We've talked about logistics. Uh, in my last video, I mentioned that the Moscow Times reported that Russia has had 11 major aviation scares or accidents in the first eight days of December. Russia needs planes to hold their country together. They don't have reliable road networks. And if saboteurs can keep blowing up tunnels and, and, and bridges uh, to, to, just, to cripple their rail system, then Russia doesn't have the logistics to hold itself together. So when I see these fires, because there's always these unexplained fires happening all over Russia, is it an accident? Is it sabotage? I don't know, but it all adds up. It's it's Russia's a very big place, and they had a lot of resources to start this war, but they're being weakened and they're being drained every day. If it takes another two years, it takes another two years, but Ukraine will win this war. As far as the Ukrainians' ingenuity, I just want to quick say yeah. it's about who wants it more. Uh, for Ukraine, they don't have any other options. This is a war of survival. Russia has been threatening them with genocide this entire time, stealing their children. I don't know how you could be any more motivated to resist than that. Whereas on the Russian side, I can show you clips of Solvyov on Kremlin State TV complaining that people in Moscow and St. Petersburg don't talk about the war, don't think about the war, and are doing nothing to help Russia win this war. And Putin knows that. I mean, his address this week, uh, a big part of it was addressed to reassuring people in the big metropolitan centers that they don't need to worry about the war. It really isn't going to disrupt their lives too much. Don't, you know, don't come out and he didn't say the word protest, but essentially the implication is don't worry. You know, we're not going to have to mobilize you. We've got it all covered. It's all in hand. You can stick your heads back in the sand like ostriches. But what's your view? I mean, my view is, is, is the war is coming for those people who've pretended they could ignore it, uh, those people who are in the more affluent cities. Um, it will come for them as Russia really runs out of the uh, the sort of dregs, the manpower, the alcoholics, the criminals, et cetera, that they've been throwing in human meat wave attacks. So what's your view? When when will uh, a more general generalized mobilization take, mobilization take place, especially if Putin, who still seems to have the same war aims, he's still talking about taking big chunks of Ukrainian territory, even Odessa and the southern uh, Black Sea coast, if he's going to try and achieve these things, he's going to need more bodies, isn't he? I think Putin, the first couple of months of the invasion, was really worried because it wasn't going according to plan. And he genuinely did fear that the people wouldn't accept it. But now that we're two years into it and the Russian people have accepted it, the genuine support is there because they don't have free speech, freedom of press. There's, there's no ability to think otherwise than the official Kremlin narrative. Putin's shocked. I'm sure he's sitting there thinking, have I really gotten away with this? Like, are the Russian people just going to do anything I say? Can I send hundreds of thousands of people to die in these meat wave attacks and nobody is going to resist? So I think he just wants to get through this March election and then he can do anything he wants. Millions of Russians can die. Nobody in Russia seems to care. So it's game on. Uh, so I think, yeah, as far as obviously the inner party members and their children will always be protected. He's not going to risk anybody that he needs in his government. Uh, but as far as like the random, you know, hotel owner or restaurant owner in Moscow or St. Petersburg, they might be clubbed over the head and dragged away and then wake up in Ukraine. Uh, because Russia needs bodies, and they need to get the ball rolling. They have to take Ukraine, russify the people, conscript them, mobilize them, use those people then to invade the next country, so forth and so forth. That's how Putin's going to get his empire back. Putin likes to talk about you know, the great czars of Russian history, and he's concerned with his place in history. He wants to be remembered. If he lives through his next turn, he will have ruled Russia longer than Stalin did. And I'm sure he wants, you know, 100 years from now for there to be hundreds of Putin statues all over 
the Russian Empire that spans across the Caucasus, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, Scandinavia, and he'll go down in history as the most influential man of this thousand years or whatever, the Genghis Khan of this millennia. Yeah, that, that that level of delusion kind of sounds about right from the sort of uh, gibberish he utters in his in his speeches. When it comes to the nuclear brinkmanship, or rather the threats that have been present, as as you said, really since the start of the war, um, and in fact over many years, Putin has always hinted at uh, the fact that Russia needs to have a greater status in the world because of its nuclear arsenal. But he's been absolutely explicit, and many of his propagandists have said the most outrageous things about nuclear armaments. Um, with your military experience in that field, has this shocked you? And do you think that Russia would be desperate enough to actually use some form of nuclear armaments um, if they were to catastrophically lose on the battlefield? So Russia has about 6,000 nuclear weapons. The United States has 5,800. Uh, for a symbolic reason, we let Russia say they get to be number one. In, in the nuclear disarmament treaties, Russia always had to have just a little bit more. So they had that feather in their cap to brag to the world. Fine, you can have it, Russia. But nobody in the United States, nobody in our government, nobody in our media ever seriously discusses using a nuclear weapon. Even if we're losing the war in Iraq, losing the war in Afghanistan, nobody's ever talking about using a nuke. That's the responsible thing to do. Whereas Russia, their army was a paper army. It, it was corrupt through and through to its core. And the Russian military, if it actually was what they said it was, yeah, they should have taken Ukraine in two weeks. That's what all Western analysts, military experts were saying. And the fact that we're two years into this war and they, ha they can't even take Avdivka, that is how incompetent and useless the Russian military actually is, which is why they 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 play up their, their trump card, the, the nukes. It's the only thing they have. And people in the comments section ask me all the time, does Russia's nuclear weapons really work? Russia doesn't care. Even if they have a failure rate of 50%, you know, on their ICBMs or whatever, they still have 3,000 working nuclear weapons. So Russia makes up for their incompetence, their failure rates with mass quantities. Just we'll have a lot of them. Our air defenses aren't that good. We'll just have a lot of them. <laughs> um, so what was your question concerning the nuclear angle? Um, yeah, I mean, are they are they likely to? I mean, we know that they've been oh, using they them use as it? a threat, but would they actually use it? And in what capacity? I, I, I made a dedicated video to this uh, about a year ago, why Russia will never use a nuclear weapon. I think I gave like 10 reasons or whatever. Uh, but the short one is Russia doesn't know how the other nuclear powers would react. So if Russia nuked Kiev or used a tactical nuke, you know, in the Zaporizhia front or something, how would India and China respond? That's the only thing Russia cares about. If India and, and China joined in on the sanctions in response to Russia using a nuclear weapon in their aggressive war out of convenience, well, that, that's, a, that's a death blow. So I think she actually, this is the report, when she visited Moscow, this was a couple months ago, he told Putin to knock it off, to stop talking, stop threatening to use nukes. That that's the red line even for China. You know, if you can win this war, great. If you can't win the war without using nukes, you're going to lose it regardless. Uh, so thank you, I guess, to India and China. I'm sure they've telegraphed this, that they would not tolerate Russia using nuclear weapons out of convenience across Eastern Europe. <laughs> uh, but that's the number one reason. Uh, the number two reason, I'll just give it to you. If Putin uses a nuclear weapon, he's dead. He'll have to go underground to his favorite command bunker and never come out because there'd be a hellfire mister with a predator Joan waiting for his motorcade. Uh, the only reason why Putin hasn't been assassinated, people ask me this, why, why won't the CIA or MI6 or whoever take out Putin? And the, you know, the theory is, is that the West wants Putin to stay in power because he's a rational enough actor not to use nuclear weapons. If Putin was assassinated, 
and the guy replacing him, an unknown, well, that person might actually use nukes then. If Ukraine can get to Putin, I'm sure it's game on. Just, you know, good, 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 good for them. But Western agents aren't going to assassinate Putin because he won't use nukes. And, and that's why he's been allowed to stay in power. I've heard an interesting argument as well from uh, Ukrainians, uh, but also one of the uh, Russian um, opposition commentators called Michael Naki. He analyzed line by line Putin's speech to see, and his argument was to see whether Putin had actually learned anything from this two years of war. And his conclusion was that Putin hasn't, that Putin is being fed bad information, yes, but he is also not receptive to changing his view of the world, changing his opinion. So when he's in a room with his sort of generals and they're trying to communicate some of the reality to him of the battlefield and how things might have to change, instead he lectures them with, with, with what he thinks is his version of reality. This actually might weigh in favour of keeping Putin alive because his micromanagement of the war, his disastrous decisions and this really skewed reality in which he lives in may be the guarantee that Russia loses this war. Whereas if he steps aside, somebody perhaps more realistic with better information uh, might actually improve things on the Russian side. Putin is not a military commander. He's a KGB officer from East Germany that over oversaw a brothel. Like he, the mayor of St. Petersburg or something, he was the deputy mayor. I mean, he's not, he's not a military genius. Neither is Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, who's a civil engineer by trade. Uh, I guess Gerasimov is a career military man, but you, you don't promote and reward people in the Russian military for being competent. You reward them for being loyal. You reward them for graft and corruption and fudging the numbers and, and making sure that Putin gets his kickback. So yeah, this was kind of predictable. I mean, Russia had such overwhelming resources and numbers and soldiers. Ukraine should have lost this war if Russia was minimally competent. Given that they're not, Ukraine has a serious chance. And I, and I believe eventually Ukraine will uh, win this war. With the nuclear threats, do you get the impression that actually uh, the supply of munitions has been slower, piecemeal, that actually if we hadn't taken uh, Russia's nuclear threat, or perhaps even in the idea that we don't want to precipitate a complete collapse in Russia to heart, that actually we might have supplied munitions that are much more aligned to a concept of victory and a swift victory rather than the line which until now has been for as long as it takes without really defining what that victory means. I think there was a lot of European leaders, maybe like Schultz and Macron, who genuinely thought that Putin would realize his mistake, that a couple of weeks or a couple of months into the invasion, the fact that Ukrainians weren't welcoming them as liberators, Ukrainians weren't celebrating the arrival of, of, of these military soldiers occupying their cities. I think there are European leaders who genuinely believe Putin would realize his mistake, pull back to his own country, and then try and negotiate how to get how to how to mitigate the damage. What changed? I, I think this was October of 2022 when Putin held those fake referendums and then amended the Russian, Russian constitution to permanently, legally annex these four oblasts. I think that's the the red line where European leaders said, well, this is, he's serious. Like he's never going to back down. He's never going to leave. So Western governments only really got serious about helping Ukraine after October of 2022, six months into the invasion, which is horrifying. Uh, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. I think there was a lot of hoping in the beginning that this would just de-escalate on its own somehow. There's also the camp. There's also the camp of leaders, I think, who who believed that Russia's victory was inevitable and just kind of 
slow roll everything until Russia gets the job done. Uh, but Russia is so incompetent. And, and, and what really changed the battlefield was the introduction of HIMARS. As soon as Ukraine in August of 2022 got Gimler's rounds and started blowing up all these ammunition depots within 80 kilometers of the front lines, Russia couldn't couldn't steamroll with artillery like they had been doing in the cities of Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. So since October of 2022, we've been better. The introduction of Bradleys and Challenger tanks, and now we've got F-16s, and Attackums eventually did show up. Taurus cruise missiles, Scalp cruise missiles, cluster munitions. You know, we, we talk about these wonder weapons, but they all do the same thing. They all kill Russians and destroy their equipment. And it's a it's a bank account that had started with $300 billion, and this isn't going to stop until that goes to zero. And there are, of course, some capabilities that aren't yet uh, in the theatre. So the F-16s are not yet uh, operational or being used. Um, uh, I don't know whether they're actually in country or whether the training's still going on, but you know they're, they're due to impact. But they certainly weren't there when perhaps they could have had a huge impact, which was the start of the counteroffensive. And, of course, the uh, longer-range attackums not yet approved for supply. So we've got the cluster ones, which were used to devastating effect on the airfield with the helicopters. And those helicopters were causing terrible casualties, especially amongst mine clearance uh, people on the Ukrainian side. So there's some great munitions really having an effect. But there are other things like Taurus and long-range attackums, which what do you think the impact is going to be these when they eventually do arrive in theatre? The arrival of F-16s, you mean? And and Taurus and the longer range attackums. There's quite a few which are slated to to be provided, but aren't yet uh, there. The, the the big one that I'm excited for is GLSDB. That should have already been there. Boeing and Saab said they needed more time for something testing some nonsense, but their new uh, timetable is GLSDB with a range of 150 kilometers is going to show up at the beginning of 2024. Uh, but as far as F-16s, uh, if the planes can survive, if, if the planes can take off and land and not be destroyed by Russian missiles, uh, it just gives Ukrainians a lot of new weapon capabilities. You know, when you look at like a, a graphic image of all the different kinds of missiles that we've designed in NATO countries over the last 50 years to fit on the F-16s, it just gives them a lot more tools, a lot more missiles from our inventories that we're comfortable donating to Ukraine. But 30, 40, 50 F-16s showing up over the next two years, uh, it's definitely going to help. But this is a war of attrition, and uh, Russia's not backing down. Uh, I, I, I wish I could say there's a wonder weapon coming that's going to solve all the problems, and, and Ukraine's going to be able to kick down the door and make it to the Sea of Azov and retake Crimea. But I think we all realize now that this is this is going to be a long, painful grind, and we're going to need some help inside Russia with some kind of political or economic event to destabilize the Kremlin and weaken or take out Putin. We're back to Badanov potentially and uh, something unexpected, a kind of black swan. The other one on the horizon, and I know, you know the media will focus on these big systems, these big ticket systems, but... Behind the scenes, uh, I understand that the production and indeed the sophistication and, uh, you know, some of the electronic systems on the drones are are really sort of scaling up. So Ukraine is massively ramping up its own domestic production of drone technology. Russia has a new class of entrepreneur that is entirely dependent on the war and entirely pro-war, a, a new class of sort of technological oligarch that apparently is emerging. Now, they may not be able to match the sort of scale and speed and uh, quality uh, of uh, Ukrainian manufacture, but it does seem that both sides have really understood the power of drones within this attritional uh, warfare technique. In the first couple months of the invasion, the United States announced they'd be sending these Switchblade 300s and Switchblade 600s 
these kamikaze drones made by a very small um, defense company. The problem is, is that the per unit cost of a single grenade power switchblade 300 is like $4,000. And when you're talking about Russia having 600,000 soldiers in the occupied territories, we can't make $4,000 drones at scale for a reasonable amount of money to do any serious damage. So the it's a race to the bottom of how cheap can we make something that can kill someone, which is horrifying for the world, that this is what all the science and engineering is currently working on. How can we kill someone with a flying grenade as cheaply as possible? That's horrible for me to even say out, out loud. Uh, but yeah, you see these FPV drones carrying, you know, like a mortar round and just suiciding into something. These are horrifying videos. I wish the world didn't wasn't going in this direction, but there's a lot of militaries around the world watching this conflict, learning from it, and saying we've got to we've got to build millions of these and and be ready for the next conflict. Uh, it's terrifying. This is not a good thing for the world. And of course, Russia. I mean, we've talked about Russian incompetence, but actually, if we flip that. Uh, Russia may have the the second best army in Ukraine, um, but when you compare it to Europe, they will have tens and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who come out of this war, if, who will survive. I mean, their death rate is, is, is appalling, but they will have many combat-hardened, uh, perhaps quite capable soldiers at the end of it. Um, Europe does not have anything comparable in terms of the sheer size of people in its army. Now, we can say there's lots of mitigating things here. The Russians uh, tend not to allow sort of leadership challenges. They tend not to allow people to be innovative, especially at lower ranks or criticize the senior military. Nonetheless, don't you think there's a, perhaps a risk of Russia emerging from this um, with a certain level of competence, military competence, that, that could be a great threat to Europe? A hundred percent, but it's it's Russian Russian society is just rearranging itself to prepare for decades of war. The only reason why you're brainwashing and indoctrinating an eight year old, teaching him how to fly drones and take apart and clean and put together, you know, an AK forty seven, you only teach an eight year old that because you're planning on him joining the military when he's eighteen. So that child today in Russia, every school in Russia now has pro-war curriculum. Uh, they they have veterans come to class and show them how to use a hand grenade. You know they're 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 getting their kids young to prepare for decades of war. Um, Putin wants the old borders of of the Tsarist Russian Empire back, and if his own people are fine, dying for him, for the glory of the empire. They're going to keep going. And yeah, every year you're in the war zone, every year you're on the battlefield, you learn to adapt. You you can't not pick up skills. You know, if you've these these mobilized men who have spent 14 months in Ukraine, they've learned really stupid stuff. Like it'd be better if they were going to a trade school and, and learning, you know, something to actually contribute and grow to the Russian economy. But no, they're learning dirty stuff. Uh, they're learning survival skills. They're learning, I, I, I don't know how long they can go without eating, like really stupid things, but survival skills in a war zone, in a trench uh, that they can teach other people and that they can use for the next war. And of course, trauma, you know, they're they're undergoing a, a, a deep traumatizing process. Um, we know from Russian history that they will come back and, you know that 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 trauma doesn't disappear overnight, but it will spread Russia throughout has, society. Russia has no intention of ever treating this trauma. Anybody that displays PTSD, they're going to be given you know a fresh set of uniform and sent to the next battlefield, and just wait for them to die. You don't have to take care of your veterans if they just die. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of people in the Russian military experiencing horror. You know, these pits in which men are beaten and thrown naked in without food and water for three days. We've seen these videos. We've seen these reports. Russia has no 
intention of ever reintegrating these people back into society, have them being constructed members. Like even if they're not killed in the war zone, they'll probably be shipped off to Siberia to work in some factory or coal mine, but they're not, they're not going to be shopping, you know, on the promenade in, in, in St. Petersburg, largest mall next year. Yeah, they're going to be traumatizing people in little villages and towns. There's an extraordinary clip of a, a veteran who went back to his, I assume, his village, you know, in the middle of, of nowhere. And um, he's asking this young boy if he wants to see what it looks like when a grenade goes off. And it's, uh, I saw it's, that uh, clip. It's it absolutely extraordinary and terrifying. And then if you know Russian, you know, the mother comes up and... Uh, the litany of foul language that comes out of her mouth is the other shocker from that video. It's like, oh, okay, um, it's just grim on 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 every uh, on every front there. Um, and of course, there's going to be people who. Uh, the irony is that you know, if you're a, a conscript that hasn't come via the uh, criminal system, they're not letting you out of the uh, occupied territories. They're not letting you out of the kind of the zone. Um, because they don't want people coming back and saying, okay, you know, what they tell you on TV is lies. The war isn't like that. Putin's, you know, uh, it's just, you know, he's in a different reality. Um, so even if they have vacation or rotations, they're being kept within uh, the, uh, you know, the trauma zone, as it were, except the criminals, the Wagner guys, they're not so concerned about that. And these guys are coming back to mainland Russia, to provincial towns, um, hardened criminals who are now not just released but uh, are lauded as as heroes it's uh it's an utter perversion of of well what we would consider normal uh, moral values just when you think russia can't get any lower i saw that report of the cannibal who had been released from prison he, he killed four people on four different incidences and ate one of them was sentenced to, to prison for life and they let him out, sent him to Ukraine. Like this isn't Ukrainian propaganda. This was a story circulating on 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 Russian social media of the family's victims seeing him in a Russian military uniform, saying, "What the heck?" But yeah, I mean, if you're willing to let a cannibal out of jail and fight for your fight for your military, obviously Russia has no intention of that man living, but he's still out there. And he's in Ukraine. I don't know. I don't know if he's still alive, but he's 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 somewhere in the occupied territories. Looking forward to getting his time off with the locals, probably. Yeah, and uh, I don't. I don't wish them uh, to bump into him uh, on a dark night. That's uh, horrific. Well, let's uh, towards the end of the conversation. Let's turn to this concept of victory, because um, whereas. We are supplying Ukraine with uh, more of what it needs to survive, despite the sort of political shenanigans that are going on at the moment. I'm sure we will actually find a way through those. We're not going to fully abandon Ukraine. So let's assume we get through that and Ukraine starts to to, to make more gains. It's got a bridgehead on the left bank of the uh, Dnipro, and there are, there are various other signs that Ukraine can still uh, make some, some progress. <clears throat> but one area which seems to be incredibly taboo is that Ukraine, in order to achieve a full victory, is going to need to take Crimea. Uh, I think there's no question really of that. You know, Ben Hodges and others talk about that, and those who sort of know the Russian psyche say that Crimea is absolutely pivotal to Ukraine victory. But also, the launch bases for the Shahids and many of the missiles are not on occupied territory. They're in Belgorod Oblast. They're uh, you know, the north in Belarus. In order to really secure its borders, Ukraine at some point is going to have to surely make incursions into Russian territory. And this is a big taboo for Western politicians. They have difficulty enough talking about the retaking of Crimea. They seem to have um, extraordinary concern for the uh, colonists who've been bussed in uh, and now live in stolen apartments on Crimea. Um, untoward concern for them. Um but, but this is a real taboo, occupying Russian territory. Zelensky made a little bit of a joke about that, about, you know, how you negotiate with Russia. And he said, well, you know, we'll negotiate to hand Belgorod back. And then, uh, but what's your, your military take on this? Because uh, this is quite a difficult so, topic for most people. So Western thinkers like General Ben Hodges say that Crimea is the key because if Ukraine can 
retake Zaporizhia and her and and her the Kherson and Zaporizhia regions. That's a huge military defeat for Putin. Like that's embarrassing. If two or three years into this war, Ukraine has a significant breakthrough and Russia loses all this territory. And the thinking is, is that how can Putin stay in power? How can his regime survive if they lose Crimea, a place they've controlled for nine years? So when you're saying, how can this war end without going into Russia proper? Well, it's it's what the Russian propagandists say. This is going to end with some kind of negotiation at some point. Ukraine is never taking tanks to Moscow, you know, like the fall of Berlin in 45. That's not going to happen this time. But the thinking is, is that if Ukraine can just weaken and embarrass Putin by taking Crimea, he's, he, his, his effectiveness to govern, to rule the Horde lands will be weakened to the point where he'll be toppled. Somebody in the KGB, or I'm sorry, the FSB, you know, will, will knife him in the back and, you know, the Kremlin will go radio silent for 48 hours and then some man wearing a nice suit will come to a podium and say, I'm now in charge of Russia. And the deal is, if you uh, acknowledge me as the legitimate successor to Putin, who we killed, uh, then we'll strike a deal. You know, we'll we'll get the ball rolling on normalizing relations and ending the stupid war. That's the thinking. So, no, I don't think Ukraine ever is going to go into Russia proper to destroy factories. If they can just uh, retake their own territory... That's step one anyways. It'll it'll cripple Putin's credibility. And why would you follow him if you're three years into the war and you don't even control any part of Ukraine anymore? Yeah, that's a, that would be a terrible embarrassment. It would be a huge sign of weakness. And uh, this is a bit of a uh, oxymoron, the sort of weak strongman. Um, the other element of that victory, uh, you know, I think everyone following this uh, who's pro-Ukrainian has a has a strong belief in the possibility of the scenario you've outlined, but there's also tens tens of thousands of Ukrainian children who've been taken, as you mentioned earlier. There are horrific crimes that have been committed, um, and some of those Russians committed those crimes are known and are still alive. Many have been, you know, wiped out. As uh, reportedly, around ninety percent of the original uh, invasion force is is no longer uh, alive. Um, what is the chances then as part of that uh, potential negotiation that Ukraine could get something approaching uh, justice uh, and uh, uh, not the word retribution, but restitution for the incredible losses uh, that it suffered? If there's some kind of end to the war and Ukraine restores all of its sovereignty, then yeah, Ukraine is going to spend decades finding and hunting down all these people. The, the the documented evidence is everywhere. You can't you can't prosecute every Russian soldier, but you're you're gonna get the generals, you're gonna get the admirals, you're gonna get the people running these POW camps for Ukrainian soldiers who are all being tortured and beaten. Get them all. Uh it took it took decades to get all the Nazis and it's gonna take decades to get all these Russians, but no, none of them should be allowed to thrive and prosper in a post-Putin Russia. Um, and I think, I, I do think that the Europeans will help them, and they should. Uh, but if Ukraine wants to make this this personal cause to get justice and retribution for all of their, all of their lost loved ones, then yeah, go ahead. Years, decades, you know, if some Russian oligarch tries to relocate to Abu Dhabi or, or Thailand or, or somewhere to lay low until they die of old age, send in some agents, you know, undercover and, and, and snatch these guys, have them wake up in Kiev and, and put the spotlights on them. Never let the world forget. This is the, um, this needs to be the new saying. Never let the world forget what the Russians did. Because I think in 1992, when the Soviet Union collapsed, they got a free pass. All the crimes that the Kremlin committed uh, in, the, in the Soviet territory for, for 60, 70 years, they got a free pass. And what happened? You know, we got Putin and, and, and a, re a repeat of the cycle. So no, this isn't how this is going to happen the next time Russia collapses. 
Nope, there wasn't a single punishment for a single individual for the entire litany of uh, Soviet crimes. Uh, I know some people in the local sort of puppet governments were prosecuted, but it's uh, yes, it's an extraordinary fact that uh, none of these crimes uh, really had any sense of justice. And, uh, you know, the state really tried to convince people, well, you know, forget all about it. When I was in Russia in the 90s as well, you know, many Russians would be like, oh, well, that was the Soviet Union. That wasn't us. You know, that was nothing to do with us. So everybody, it wasn't just the governments, every individual got a free pass and an extraordinary, uh, um, you know, um, mandate for amnesia, let's say. Um, now, you, you say you haven't been to Ukraine. Um, I'm not encouraging you to go to Russia. I don't think any of us would be safe in Russia, especially not running the channels. Do you have any plans in the coming year to to visit Ukraine? Um, Taking a trip to Europe for me from the West Coast of the United States, you know, it'd be a long trip. And, you know, I can't fly to Ukraine. I'd have to fly to Poland and then take a train. But um, I, I really want to visit, but I, I wouldn't be posting then. Like, I'd have to do, like, travel vlogs or pre-record Q&A and podcasts or whatever. So um, uh, I'm in a routine at the moment. and. You know, I've got a good rhythm to it, so it's daunting to try and plan a week or two trip. Uh, but eventually, yeah, I'll go 100%. Yeah, definitely two weeks. I made that mistake because, uh, yeah, I went to Lviv in August. And I thought, hey, I'll just hop across to Kiev. It's going to be. And then everyone just looked at me like, you're, you're crazy. You know, it's a whatever, a 15 hour train ride from Lviv. There's just no way you can just hop over there and hop back. It's uh, logistically there's a there's a lot of stuff to to uh, to sort out there. But we'll see. We'll see if Anna and uh, and I can sort of work on you to persuade you to to pop over. Um, we're going to be trying to organize some events uh, next year, sort of conferences, film panels, etc. So we'll uh, yeah we'll keep we'll keep nudging. See if we can uh, get you to come over. I appreciate the invite. <laughs> and I think the big revelation for me, and you know, like like you said at the start of the interview, um we we feel that we're right. We feel that Ukraine ha is 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 the right cause to to uh, uh you know to really advocate for, but I wasn't sure until I went to there that that all this stuff that I was saying was was actually true. You know, you corroborate it, you read, you talk to first hand first hand witnesses. Um but I was delighted to say that, yeah, go, going there uh, more than justified everything that we're talking about and, and those values, the things they're fighting for are are absolutely real. And, uh, that, and I that's the Russian it. strategy is to make yeah. you question your sanity, to yeah. make you question what is real. Uh, they just make noise. You know, uh, Vlad Vexler talks so well about the new version of, of Russian propaganda, you know, in the Soviet times, it was about utopianism. You're all living in a worker's paradise. You have no wants or needs that are not being met by the States. And in today's Russian propaganda, they just, they hit you with everything. They'll, they'll blast noise at you, both sides of an issue, just to make you feel exhausted, to just wear out your emotions and the noise never stops. And, they're relentless, you know, kudos to them for their conviction, but they don't, people who support Russia in the West, they don't talk about how great Russia is or how perfect of a society or how wonderful the Russian people are. Nobody in these pro-Russian YouTube channels are showing clips of how wonderful and kind the Russian soldiers are. It's all about attack, 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 question, 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 wear people down until they feel exhausted and they just disengage. That is the new form of totalitarian propaganda. Just wear people out with noise so they give up and then you can take over. And it's piped into our mobile devices. It's piped into our screens. It's it's everywhere, unfortunately. That's why, you know, to close, it's so good to have channels like yours that are constantly reflecting uh, a, a better version of reality, I would say, a more accurate version of reality to to counter it. And I know you, you probably have that feeling I do, which is that you have to produce material continuously because you have to sort of, uh, you have to create that version of reality that counters the, the disinformation version. Yeah, sometimes you have to shout back. I, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of determination. I've got a lot of 
gas in the tank. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to get tired. I'm going to keep posting. And I actually have plans for next year to start making short form content. There's so much, you know, we're, we're siloed here on YouTube. YouTube is fantastic, but what percentage of the global population is getting their information just from YouTube? So I know what I need to do. Like I need to be more active on Instagram and TikTok um, because that's, that's where the people spend their time on their mobile devices, not, not on YouTube. That's interesting. Keep us posted because, uh, you know, there could be some great learnings for that. Um, I've been thinking as well how I can increase, you know, the size of the audience for this material and, and get it across in a more I'm, punchy way. I'm going to be taking so, short form content yeah. real serious next year. That's that's my New Year's resolution. Fantastic. I'll look out for that and hopefully uh, learn a couple of hints and techniques there. Jake, it's been a huge privilege speaking to you. As I say, I've long been a fan of your material. So uh, it's a great privilege to be able to have this conversation. And yeah, I hope it's the first of uh, of several potentially uh, so we can keep sort of uh, keep uh, beating the drum for Ukraine uh, until victory. Glory to Ukraine. Hello, Slava.